0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling solutions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm excited to welcome Joel Schneider, Chief Operating Officer at Solid Biosciences. Thanks for joining us today, Joel. Well, Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So to start off, Joel, would love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure, well, I'm a muscle and stem cell biologist by training. I've been seeing musculoskeletal diseases for the last 15 years or so. We founded Solid about eight years ago, I founded it coming out of a postdoc alongside our CEO, Elon. and joined the company originally as an R&D analyst. Not a lot of people know the original founding and history of solid biosciences, but actually at the onset, we were had this vision of a venture capital firm, sort of seeding investment in early stage opportunities to accelerate the development of promising therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. At the time of SOLID's inception, uh, there were very limited options for Duchenne patients. And we made the argument to our core of founders that it made sense to transition to an operating model, change the name from SOLID Ventures to SOLID Biosciences. And over the years, it evolved my role as the company needed, largely in IND enabling activities for our lead program. I then built out a division of the R&D core focused on early stage, high risk, high reward biology, sort of focusing on what would be the next generation modalities behind our lead efforts. And most recently I transitioned into the operating role as chief operating officer, where I oversee technical operations, general corporate operations, communications, investor relations, all that kind of fun stuff. All that being said, and I think most importantly, we founded Solid to develop therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That's our singular focus. And we're currently in the clinic with our lead program. It's called SGT-001. And that's an AEV-9 capsid mediated delivery of a, a surrogate. For the gene that is mutated and not functioning appropriately in Duchenne patients and delivers ultimately a protein surrogate that can rescue the muscles from damage. And so my career trajectory has really been one that's largely met the needs of the organization that I work for. It's been about eight years. And I would say that every day I'm learning something new and always excited by the challenges in front of us. And Joel, how did you and Elon first meet? That's a good story. I was in the middle of a postdoc in a Amy Wager's lab at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and I was really happy and enjoyed the work I was doing looking for small molecules that can enhance muscle regeneration, really largely falling in line with my background and general research interests. I had a very crummy LinkedIn profile. I think it said PhD Duchenne, something along those lines. And Elon reached out to me and said, hey, I have a son with Duchenne. I'm moving my family over to the US. I'm going to start a company to try and develop therapies for this devastating disease. Would you like to meet? And you know, we met on the Harvard campus for a coffee. I shared with him a copy of my thesis. I don't believe he actually read it. I think he read the introduction or the the acknowledgement section, which thanked my mom and my dad for supporting me through the efforts. And I thought, what an amazing way to leverage my research experience to ultimately the benefit of patients. I've always been a translational researcher. I've largely been focused on areas where I felt that basic research could meet therapeutic need. And I felt like this is just a fantastic way to kick off my drug development career and join a lot on this uh, really important mission. And I'm really grateful to still be doing that today. And Joel, you've
0: certainly had quite the rise since you first started at Solid, and you've had a number of different roles. I'm curious, as you step into, you know, let's say like a director of R&D for the first time or CTO or now more recently COO, how do you go about understanding what that role entails and the support system that you have around you?
1: You know, I think the support system is the largest part of a successful organization. I've always been more of an enabler and an integrator less definitively the subject matter expert. You know, I don't have a lot of strong skills, but one of them is to really understand, you know, what is necessary to accomplish a goal. And so, you know, as my title has changed and as I've sort of shifted in responsibilities, I've always been really focused on uh, having a sense of humility about the challenges in front of us. And that's just more of a cognizance of how challenging what we do is. I think there's the adage that one out of every 10 drugs can actually make it through the development process. And I think in gene therapy, it's a bit skewed towards early stage successes and preclinical models and early stage proof of concept. And things get more daunting and challenging as you think about later stage developments and ultimately commercialization. And so for me, my career has largely been defined by having a very strong support network of great colleagues that I work with on a daily basis and also being honest and transparent with what I know and what I don't know. You know, I'll be honest, when the title of Chief Technology Officer was proposed to me, it sounded really cool. I thought it was more of a a role for somebody working in Disney World's robotics division. But at the end of the day, what I was really passionate about, now that we were in the clinic with our lead program, was this idea of leveraging what we had learned even in the first few years of development and beginning to apply that to high-risk, high-reward early stage technologies, ultimately with the notion that as we were evolving our pipeline, there'd be a lot of good data coming out, a lot of interesting research and a lot of good collaboration that we were making. And it's another area we're really proud of and solid. And then we can apply that as we moved forward. And so for me, it's always been about recognizing who are the smartest people in the room, but also really identifying who are the best collaborators in the room. I'm not honestly sure which one is more important, but I think when you have a good sense of a strong technology focus, you also have great collaboration and partnership and transparency you can do a lot of really great things. And I think that's the history of what I've done so far. I think there's a lot more to do, certainly with the challenges ahead of solid and also the larger gene therapy field. Yeah. And over the last, you know, eight years
0: or so, I'm sure you've learned a ton about gene fee and the challenges and opportunities that it presents. Would love if you could set the stage for us in terms of what you're seeing out there in terms of R&D efficiency as it relates to gene therapy and also just challenges in operating in that space.
1: It's a great question. I think first and foremost, what we're seeing is every day, and and this is, this is not something new, but such a rapid and evolving rapidness of the translation of basic research into clinical development. It's robust and it's, it's pretty amazing. I think at the end of the day, as we look at the field of gene therapy, it's an amazing case study where when we were generating our early animal model data that was supportive of our IND enabling efforts, that data suggested that, you know, AAV-based gene therapy was incredibly promising. And that these were non-pathogenic viruses that could be rapidly harnessed to incorporate genes of interest and used as very powerful delivery vehicles. And I think largely that thesis has played out, although not without challenges in the field, but across the spectrum of of general drug development. It's more the sign of a nascent field of development, less the sign of challenges that we can't overcome as a field. And so what what do I mean by that? Let's take it part by bit. know, certainly in high-dose systemic gene therapy, there have been many challenges across the way. You know, we at Solid certainly had a number of those safety challenges that we've learned from and importantly, improved our strategies as we move forward upon as well. The animals that we've all worked with aren't necessarily representative of what we've seen in the clinic so far to date. And so it's really important to learn not only from our preclinical models, our in vitro models, it's really important to be in a cycle of constant evolution and learning one of the first things that we did at SOLID, we decided that the preclinical data and the notion of using systemic gene therapy to treat a disease like Duchenne was relevant. We brought together all of the relevant stakeholders. And this goes back to my, my notion of being collaborative and also having the smartest people in the room, but being inherently collaborative. And you know, we brought together all the major players, Jim Wilson, June Samolsky, Barry Byrne, Lee Sweeney, all the guys that were really focused on developing promising gene therapies. And Jude at the time put up a slide that showed this cycle of, of learning and cycle of, of evolution of drug development, whereby you start with an idea, you test it in animal models, you take it into the clinic, you learn from what you experience in the clinic, evolve and go back to basic research, and you keep repeating that cycle until you really refine your product. And I think what we've seen in the last seven or eight years, especially in the gene therapy field, is this evolution of refined drug development based on constant learning and evolution of our understanding. And when I think about R&D efficiency, I think about translatability. I think it really is, going back to this notion of being humble with what we're learning, honestly, understanding that this is an evolving field and we're still very much in the early stages, and that we have to be open and agnostic from data that's in front of us and apply it meaningfully to advance our programs forward. Great. Thanks for that background, Joel.
0: Going back to the founding, you know, being patient-centric, It's something that a lot of biotechs tout as a value, but it certainly hits very differently when the CEO's family is directly impacted by the disease that the company is working on. I'm curious if there are any lessons learned or advice that you would provide to other biotechs in terms of what it truly means to be patient-centric and how to embody that value across the company.
1: Well, let me first say that I think everybody in drug development, and certainly in all the biotechs that are working as hard as we are to develop promising therapies for patients with them in need, we're all patient-centric. It's why we do what we do. I think what we do on a daily basis is too hard to not have that motivation be a major driver, that at the end of the day, the work that we're doing will ultimately make other people's lives better. So I think we're all patient-centric to start with. I think the immediacy that we at Solid are faced with on a daily basis, where we know that we have a leader in our organization alongside many others, that goes home to a very unique challenge on a daily basis, draws a, a real immediacy to how we operate. And I think that permeates across our entire culture. We designed our first clinical study for SGT-001, our lead program. We designed it to be inclusive of patients across the entire spectrum of the disease. That includes the youngest patients who are still actually improving on a daily basis, as well as patients that are progressing in their decline. In other words, you know, once patients hit a certain age, their motor function skills begin to decline and cardiopulmonary issues become really prevalent. And I think, you know, based on our understanding of the disease and based on the fact that our CEO on a daily basis was going home to a patient that at that point was still very young and improving, led us to design a study that would capture a wide range of endpoints across a wide range of different ages. Understanding that a boy that's in that 47-year-old age range with Duchenne is going to have a very different progression or evidence of natural history as compared to an older patient that is no longer able to walk. And so the type of data that we've been generating in this study is across a wide range of assessments that capture potential benefit of the spectrum of disease progression. So we have assessments that capture the ability of patients to walk. We have assessments that capture the ability of patients to breathe. And we have assessments that are really focused on patient-reported outcome measures. So what are caregivers seeing in their children or in their family members that are affected by Duchenne, And are they seeing benefit that is not captured by some of the classical endpoints that we use? And so I think it's that patient centricity, that understanding of the disease, and the fact that our CEO told us very early on, I don't believe that the classical assessments are going to be the way that these drugs are going to be approved as we move forward. The disease is too complex and heterogeneous in outcomes to support that. Let us to design a study that is really comprehensive to explore many different endpoints. And so when I would describe a lesson learned, I, I think you know, what we see very much today is the rise of platform-based biotechs, which is an exciting way to do drug development right? We have a very interesting core technology, and we're going to identify the way that it can be applied most meaningfully to different diseases. What I would say or what I would urge is that as platform-based organizations begin to explore various indications and go after them, take the time to really understand what patients and what patient advocacy groups that are trying to tackle these devastating diseases understand from the disease. And I would say don't rely necessarily on peer-reviewed data or validated endpoints. Really go deep to understand what would be most meaningful to patients on a daily basis. You know, one of the really interesting aspects of Sol is that we have a number of employees that have Duchenne, and they play a very vital role across many different aspects of the company. It's really exciting, from communications to operations to HR. And I remember one of the first conversations I had with one of our, our first employees uh, with Duchenne, Michael Counterman. Michael passed away not too long ago. And when I asked him what he would love to see from a gene therapy benefit, given that he was right in a wheelchair and, you know, was having some trouble, some trouble breathing. He said to me, Joel, if I can keep using my index finger to use my iPad, that is my access to the world. That is my way to communicate with the world around me and continue to talk and play Minecraft or whatever games, you know, I want to play or snap, whatever it is, Snapchat. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really, I'm really a fossil in that regard. And if you can preserve that, That to him was benefit. And so I think we often lose sight of how patients interpret benefit as compared to how us in the drug development field do. And I think that's an important lesson that, you know, I I hope we can share as and continue to communicate from the work we've done at SOLID. Yeah, some great advice there, particularly for rare disease with
0: not a lot of data historically for development purposes. Switching gears a bit now with that background, bring us up to speed on what's going on at SOLID now and current initiatives that are in flight.
1: Sure. Well, we're in the clinic with our lead program. That's SGT one I mentioned a few times. We've dosed a, a number of patients with it. You know, we've learned as we've moved the program forward, and we've certainly hit some challenges that others in the field have as well, related to you know the early periods around after dosing. And we're interpreting that data. We're integrating it into our our strategies. We're learning from it, and we're applying those learnings into the clinic. And so we're in the clinic. We're really excited by you know this year was the first time we shared clinical data from the program, and that data is. It's encouraging. The early stages suggest that patients that have been administered SGT-001 may be benefiting. And as I described before, that benefit comes out in a lot of interesting ways. You know, we were one of the first groups, one of the only groups to share pulmonary outcomes from how patients dosed with SGT-001 at least a year after administration are benefiting in various pulmonary assessments that we do. And the data there is very encouraging. And again, that's an assessment that we built into the study because we understood that patients that we were envisioning dosing were across this wide age range. And some patients may be more targeted and, and learn more simply from targeting manifestations that are associated with more progression of the disease. So we're in the clinic, we're moving forward, we're planning for uh, maturation and future clinical development of that, of that program. And we're excited by having announced four different clinical updates related to it this year, some of which are around the benefit, others around the durable long-term expression of our protein once it's expressed in the body. Going back eight years, that was really a major question for all of us, which was, what would the durability of these gene therapies be after dosing? And the data we've generated so far is encouraging. We certainly have more to do. We also announced a little earlier this year our next generation gene therapy for Duchenne. We're really excited about it. It goes back to the cycle of, of learning and evolving where we've been focused on the development of SGT001 using a, what's called a classical capsid. It's one of the, you know, the early variants. And we've now learned and, and many folks in the field are trying to evolve on those early capsids in many different ways. And we don't have to go into the details about how they're evolving capsids or you know whether they're using high throughput development efforts or rational design. We fall on the ladder, by the way. But we've been learning from what we've experienced with A89, and we've applied that to our next generation program called SGT-003. And the whole idea there is basically what we've learned in terms of dose response and how much protein we can get at any given dose. We're really excited to move that forward because what we've seen suggests that at a similar dose, we can really dramatically increase the amount of protein that we see. So moving it forward. We're going to be leveraging early on development of a different manufacturing process, which we're excited about. And that goes along with the maturation of solid with this long-term view of becoming agnostic to our manufacturing modality. And really focusing on what gets us to that fastest clinical proof of concept. So, to help us get there, we announced a partnership with Forge Biologics. They're a younger CMO that we're really excited to work with and is going to help us move this program forward really quickly. And then, behind that, we're, we're really in this corporate strategy of having developed a number of very interesting early stage technologies, some of which we shared, like the capsid work that goes into SGT 003, but some of which is still in the incubator, so to speak, and being evolved. How we can continue to learn from what we've done so far, uh, both on the late stage development side and on the exploratory side, and how that allows us to expand and diversify our pipeline as we grow the organization. So a lot of exciting work, all led by our our lead program, SGT-001, and now really evolving and maturing our pipeline as we continue to learn so much with every patient dose and every candidate that we
0: develop. Great. Very exciting progress, Joel. You know, you've obviously been at the company since the very early days, and you've seen various iterations of the company from being venture-backed to now being publicly traded. Talk us through the maturation of the company as you've been seeing it from inside, from a seed-stage startup to now being publicly traded and, and with a market cap of a few hundred million.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's certainly been a fantastic roller coaster. And that's, that's, that's the nature of biotech. And I like to joke that I think I had pretty shocked black hair when we started solid. And now I'm struggling to find a black hair, but that's all joking aside, you know, we've learned a massive amount and, and companies in our space have these really rapid trajectories for growth that comes along with success. And, you know, the earliest proof of concept data generates meaningful value for patients and for potential investors. And that drives us to accelerate our pace of development fairly dramatically. I was talking with uh, with Alon, our, our CEO recently, about what he views the largest challenges that biotechs face. And he used to say, you know, I, I really thought it was around demonstrating benefit in the clinic. Now I believe it's more about communication within an organization. And what do I mean by that? When a company goes through very rapid growth, like we all do, the challenges of communicating effectively in all directions become really Impactful in the sense that everyone needs a clear line of communication so that they can be responsible for their areas, feel empowered to make the right decisions, and so that quite honestly they understand what's going on, on a daily basis in the organization. And I think it's very easy to grow in a culture totally unintentionally where everyone is so laser-targeted on the work that you don't really have great cross-pollination of ideas, and you know you, you sort of build these core areas of expertise and excellence, and they everyone's operating at 100% efficiency but you're not getting the bi-directional information that allows us to do all of this and do our work really efficiently. And so to overcome that at SOLID, we've implemented some really interesting meeting structures. You know, most organizations have a meeting structure that relies very heavily on technical operations or tech ops. So that's the central nexus of manufacturing science and technology, process development, analytical development, regulatory quality, everyone sitting around the table as it relates to late-stage development and ensuring that we're sharing information. And that's a meeting that probably every company has because it's it's such a necessity to ensure that we're moving things forward efficiently and we're staying aligned on very critical path items. But over the last couple of years, Carl Morris, our CSO, and I implemented a different meeting. We call that meeting tech strategy. Terrible name, but it is what it is. Tech strategy is, is almost the opposite of tech ops. And that's really a nexus for early stage research that could be impactful 12 months, 18 months, 24 months down the line for tech ops. But it's a meeting that's really focused on ensuring that our later stage development folks, that largely sit in the tech ops wheelhouse, are hearing from and reacting to what our early stage research and development teams are doing. It helps us really build out our two-year, three-year planning cycles because we have you know really good back and forth communication. It goes back to the cycle of, of evolving and learning as you develop your program. So, as an example, what are my manufacturing teams on the manufacturing floor seeing? and wishing that we could do differently in the future that is really relevant for our research and development teams to know about today so that they could think about implementing and building processes that overcome those challenges as we move forward. So that's an example of tech strategy of how we make sure that everyone in the room, all the stakeholders in the room, get equal access to information and can inform each other. And we're empowering the company, a very cross-lateral way to make good decision-making, empower really good strategic thinking, and make sure that teams across the organization are getting good feedback. The other thing that we've done in solid over the last couple of years is institute a little bit of a different executive structure. We have what we call now a senior leadership team. We have our C-suite. That's important. And it is what it is. But I think equally as important, probably more excitingly, we have a senior leadership team, which is made up of the C-suite. It also brings in our SVPs and sub VPs in the organization. And it's really about key leaders in the organization that are responsible for various line functions all getting together twice a week, once about general corporate matters, the other around program development and targeted metrics and goals and hitting our strategic areas, all making sure that we're all aligned, again, horizontally to keep each other informed, to keep each other honest about development. And again, that goes back to the byproduct of having been a small company, having rapidly evolved c C-suite, learning that sometimes the C-suite isn't the most informed in the room. And by the way, we probably shouldn't always be the most informed. And that because we're working at such an urgent and and rapid pace, let's all get together. Let's all hear from one another and ensure that we're working with the best information. One of my biggest theses that I operate with is that if you're at a C-suite or an SVP or a VP level in a biotech company, you've amassed a skill set that really exceeds or transcends the boundaries of your subject matter expertise, such that... You know, my head of analytical development better be the best person in the company at developing assays to understand our drugs. But he's seen so much in general drug development that he can weigh in on our R&D efforts or on our communication strategy, as an example. So the notion that what we're trying to do at solid is really cultivate experts with a, a wide toolkit at their disposal that can work together and share their experiences and anecdotes to the betterment of the organization. And just following up on that, Joel... One out of every
0: 5,000 assets actually make it to market in our industry. And failure is inherent in the work that you do. I'm curious if there's any pieces of advice that you're willing to share or that you've learned around how do you keep the team motivated through the ups and downs that invariably will happen when you're working on something as high risk as a rare disease, as an example.
1: It's a great question. I think one of the things that we're most proud of at SOLID is alongside our, our patient centricity and the immediacy of what we do impacting patients, as we talked about before, we have a very strong technology centricity. And there's a really nice balance in the organization, I believe, of basic translational biology being very actively explored alongside our clinical development efforts. And so, what that means is that as we're moving our programs forward in the clinic, the types of engagement that I highlighted before around tech strategy discussions and horizontalness of our leadership teams really ensures that the goals that we're putting in front of our employees are meeting their desires to continue to understand science better and improve our drugs. And so I think there is you know, very much a notion that our industry is not for the, the faint-hearted. And I think that's very true. I think what we do is very hard. We're dependent so much on patient outcomes, and then manufacturing the supply to get us those patient outcomes. And we're dependent on cells in a bioreactor to produce the drug that we can use for to get those clinical outcomes. And if those cells don't behave and they get contaminated, what does that mean? So our industry is dependent on basic molecular processes. And so taking a step back, you know, having gone through the process of peer review and getting a PhD and doing postdoc, you kind of get used to failure, but you're not hampered by it. You overcome it because you understand that what you're trying to do is to understand the world around you more efficiently. And so I think within reason, within a company like ours, most of our scientists have this sort of multidisciplinary, matrix is the wrong word, the multidisciplinary set of responsibilities where they're focusing on better understanding our drug development efforts, better understanding AAV capsid biology, better understanding protein expression, better understanding endpoints, alongside the clinical development. So we, we we try to keep our employees engaged in that way too. One of the really cool things that we have once a year, and we're in the middle of it right now, is Science Month at Solid. So every Friday, especially in our current operating environment, we hold a coffee hour where we invite a guest speaker in or we have a guest speaker from the company share some of what you know they're working on or an area of interest to the company. We've had Wellness Month. We've had folks come in to talk about their patient experience. We've had scientists from our other organizations come in SAP members. But this month is science month, and it's an opportunity for all of our employees on the science side to share with the entire company what they're working on and why it's relevant. And you know, it's actually not a focus on clinical development. It's a focus on research and development and all the really great science that our teams are developing. And so I think if you can keep your teams engaged to understand, A, what you're doing from a corporate perspective and how you're evolving your pipeline and how you're moving your, your assets forward, but also, you're keeping your technologists really engaged and you're challenging them to continue to do better and identify the next generation of opportunities or to learn from the clinical data that we've built out. Another example I'll give you, and this is an area I'm very passionate about. I, I really couldn't be more proud of our, our, our scientists. We've built out a very strong immunology expertise within SOLID. And that's really based on the challenges that we as a, as a gene therapy field have seen over the last few years. And so, you know, we've now built this structure where our immunologists are learning so much from our clinical entry and our R&D scientists are implementing immunology into how they think about refining and evolving our pipeline. And it's just an example of how we've tried to really integrate clinical development and clinical learnings into the earliest stages of development. It's an area i can talk about for hours, but I, I am very excited about the technology centricity within SOLID. Yeah, you sound
0: very passionate about it. The last 20 months have been a challenge for everyone, both personally and professionally. And if we were to think about silver linings that we have encountered along the way, what are some things that you feel have fundamentally shifted within biotech over the last 20 months that are here to stay?
1: It's a great question. And, you know, I think sweatpants are here forever now. I think they're going to be part of our own thing. <laughs> <day. laughs> no, I, I do believe that certainly within Solid, within my experience, we're incredibly proud of how our organization has, you know, continued to hit our corporate goals, working through so much adversity. We're so dependent on our manufacturing organizations. And yet, certainly during the majority of the pandemic, we were unable to be on site at our manufacturing facilities to support our manufacturing efforts. And so building better lines of communication, building virtual ways to engage with companies that we partner with, our our strategic partners, is certainly here to stay. Although I can tell you that our our teams are very excited to get back into some level of face-to-face meetings. I do believe that some level of flexibility is going to stay here. and, And it's a conversation that I don't think anyone has the definitive answer for yet. But I do think we've learned that, of course, we trust our employees. We should also empower them to make the right decisions about when they need to be on site and when they can actually work from home as well. And I think that helps a little bit with work-life balance too, right? I think it's really, uh, I love when one of our employees were on a Zoom call and one of their kids Zoom bombs in the back or a pet <laughs> jumps on screen. It adds a layer of intimacy to how we work. I think when we're always in the office... We sort of forget about that other side of our lives. And I actually think in many ways, it's built stronger connections amongst our employees. One of the funny things is that, uh, you know, we've, we've onboarded a number of new folks. We are in a bit of a, a rapid growth trajectory right now, again, it's solid. Our head of analytical development who joined about a year ago, I've now seen him fairly regularly. But the first time I met him, I could not believe how tall he was. I just did not expect it based on his. And I, there's so many of these anecdotes about people getting to meet for the first time in person and just being so surprised by it. And so I think you know, the, the immediacy with which work can, can be accomplished remotely is going to lead to more flexibility as we move forward. And I would say it's the benefit of how we operate, given that we a priori make the assumption that all of our employees are motivated and passionate and, and excited to do their work. This is now an interesting way to engage and retain really good talent by offering them some level of flexibility as, as they move forward. I also, you know, on, on the more corporate side of things, I think there will be now a balance move forward of investor meetings being over Zoom as opposed to in person. I'm not sure if I think it's a bad thing or a good thing, but as much as I love investor conferences and sitting in a tell room somewhere in Manhattan, I also kind of love being able to do back-to-back investor sessions from my office at home and then going off and having dinner with my boys. That's also you know, a nice, compelling aspect. I think the pros of you know how quickly work can get done is here to stay. I do think that we also, one of the challenges that I've I've seen over the last 20 months or so is that it's so easy just to go back to back from seven in the morning till six at night with no breaks. And it's harder to kind of build in those breaks that we all take during the day, the water cooler breaks, the walking down the street to Tata to get a, you know, to get a coffee or something. As we evolve our way of operating, which we'll be here to stay, we also have to make sure that we're all taking the time back to sort of rest and separate too. Because it is very easy to just be totally absorbed and sit at your desk at home all day and not take a break. So I think it's here to stay. But I think we also need to evolve how we encourage wellness amongst our employees, too, in this environment and and encourage folks to come on site, too, and and engage in in face-to-face meetings alongside that, because I think they're very healthy. And, you know, Solid is...
0: In my opinion, one of the more innovative companies in biotech and knowing you for a couple of years, you know, think deeply about what are the things that are no longer working and how do we continue to evolve? Speaking of that rapid growth that you guys have been experiencing and are continuing to experience and the much talked talent crisis in our industry, curious what you guys have learned over the last 20 months or, or longer about how best to operate in this world where. There's way more demand than supply from a talent perspective. And any nuggets of wisdom you're willing to share?
1: Well, fundamentally, I, I think our talent acquisition strategy has to meet all the challenges that you just described. And you know, for better or for worse, given what we just described, we've learned that we can operate very well virtually. I'll be the first to admit that I was always biased that being in the center of Cambridge in the heart of innovation is the only way to get things done. And now I've learned through necessity that we can expand our recruiting network. Actually, a lot largely thanks to your help in many ways, Will. But we can expand our network of how we recruit. And we can engage employees across the country, sometimes internationally. That's across roles in the organization and tiers from independent contributors to managers. I think as long as we're engaging in very constant communication We can really expand our our employee base. And I think our strategy and our acquisition strategy for great employees has evolved to meet that. And I think it'll continue to evolve as we move forward. I think it's an opportunity rather than a detriment to all of us. And the other side of it is, I think we should be embracing the fact that demand outstrips the supply in the sense that that means we need to be better about how we recruit. We need to offer better opportunities for our employees, better incentives better meals on site, better access to gyms, better you know opportunities to grow responsibility sets. And so I think if we're, again, learning from our cycle of innovation and our cycle of development, then we're, we're, we're agnostically taking this information in, we're absorbing it, and we're applying it to how we operate. And certainly our talent acquisition strategy uh, is, is now evolving to meet that. And I've been thrilled by how well it's been working out for us. I'll have to buy you a beer for the plug, thanks. <laughs> Anytime.
0: <laughs> so Joel, to wrap up, You've been at solid for quite some time and you've had certainly a very diversified career to date. What's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self?
1: Wow. You know, I'll give you an example. I think the biggest piece of advice I would provide back to myself would be something along the lines of take every event in stride in the sense that this is very much a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that, Knowing that it very much is a roller coaster, there are going to be amazing days of accomplishment and there are going to be many days in the middle of failure, for lack of a better word. And trying to not take personally those small failures that in the grand scheme of things are ultimately going to lead to success if we're learning from them is something that I probably heard early on in my career, but I probably didn't listen to the way that I should have. And so don't take every failed mouse experiment to heart. Understand that that data, as long as the experiments are designed in a very rigorous and comprehensive way, are going to inform alternative strategies and better ways to perform drug development and to seek opportunities for success. And so continue to have a holistic view of what you're trying to accomplish. Don't lose the forest for the trees and don't cry over a contaminated cell line or a failed mouse experiment. Thanks for that salient advice, Joel. On that note,
0: thanks for joining us today. It was great to have you on to learn about your background and the arc of your career and the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at SOLID.
1: Thank you very much for having us. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.